0: 38. That's the number of episodes released on Brian Schafer's case since March of this year, 2021. A staggering number, and Brian's case continues to just keep getting more and more popular. Why is that? What's there to cover in a 15-year-old disappearance without any apparent leads or trades to follow, with no clear direction to pursue, and where just about anything is viable? Well, perhaps that's the simple reason. When everything is plausible, nothing is off limits, we're sort of all allowed in. Our own guess of what happened to Brian Schaefer might be as true or correct as the lead detectives who worked this case for 13 years. There are no big no-no's, really. My name is Edalarosa, Rosa and this is an introduction to the mysterious disappearance of Brian Schaefer. More than a decade old is getting renewed interest. It was 13 years ago this month. OSU medical student Brian Schaefer vanished. Brian Schaefer disappeared 13 years ago, but loved ones are not giving up. In fact, there will be a march for him and for all of those missing in Ohio, hoping to generate any kind of leads to bring closure to the family. Vanished without a trace. It seems to me very odd that. Something like that would happen in a situation in that environment where nobody saw anything. Mike Puskus with Crime Stoppers says Schaefer's case is odd because he was last seen going into the Ugly Tuna saluna on April 1st, 2006. But he's never been seen coming out. In fact, he's never been seen or heard from ever again. Brian Schaefer, a 27-year-old med student, decided to go out the 31st of March 2006, together with a friend of his, Clint Florence, to celebrate the beginning of the Spring Break Holiday in Columbus, Ohio. Brian was born the 11th of February 1979, in Pickerton, Ohio. He was 6'2", athletically built, brown haired and brown eyed, a good look by all means. The son of Randy and Renee Schaefer, Brian also had a younger brother by the name of Derek. Brian's father worked as an electrician and he was active in the local parish where he was a valued saxophonist at the services. Brian's mom worked as a nurse. His younger brother Derek followed his father's ambitions and later began working for the same company the father worked for. Brian in turn would seek his mom's aspirations and he would follow in her footsteps. He began the pursuit to become a doctor and had by 2006 spent 8 years studying to make it a reality. At Ohio State University, Brian met his girlfriend, Alexis Wagner. Brian said he fell for her blue eyes and wavy long brown hair. They became almost inseparable and helped each other out studying. Their relationship was as close as could be, and some had speculated that the proposal was becoming a reality. Brian had little jokingly set up a MySpace site on the internet, where he boosted that the medical school was really a sight thing. What he really wanted to do was go to an island, play in a band, and drink margaritas all day long with his love. Because Brian's big passion in life was music. He enjoyed a mixed style of songs and performers, but his favorite group was unequivocally Pearl Jam. His dedication was such that he had made it tattoo on the upper part of his right arm. It depicted the logo of a figure on the cover of their single Alive. I also got Alexis acting to Ed the weather's lyrics and the whole experience was to culminate with a visit to Detroit, May the 22nd. Brian had been a devoted member of the Pearl Jam fan club, the 10 Club, and that earned the possibility to acquire two concert tickets close to the stage. Brian and Alexis would now watch his longtime favorite group together. As life is, not everything was hunker in Brian's own life, however. If the constant burden on pocket money shortage due to the cost of studying and immense pressure to pass the exam in medical school wasn't enough. Tragedy struck the Schaeffer family in the beginning of March 2006. Brian's mom, Renee, died of a rare form of cancer. This disease had consumed her, and there was little anyone could do to save her. She began from being the best care provider to someone who needed daily help herself. But her family, and especially Brian, was there for her. Brian had always been closer to his mom. When he received news, Renee had passed away Brian took it hard. His pillar in life had suddenly vanished. On a funeral, Brian showed up an hour later than everyone else. Randy had decided to play the saxophone during the service. In Brian's absence, he played wrong. There had been an awkward silence awaiting Brian's arrival. Some began to wonder how cope with his own feelings after Ernest's death. Although in sorrow, people close to Brian said he seemed to handle the loss of his mother rather well, as a last Christmas present, Mom Renee gave a gift Brian would look forward to. It was a trip to Miami, Florida. Brian would plan the trip in smallest detail. He sat for a long time and chose which hotel to stay at, which restaurants they would visit, and he set the departure date to when the week long spring break holiday would be. Monday, April the 3rd. So Friday the 31st of March comes along. Brian had made some plans for the evening. His longtime buddy Clint Florence would come along and they would go for a bar spree during the night. After a quick dinner with his father at the Outback Steakhouse, Brian meets up with Clint at Brian's apartment and they start the night out together. Brian had wanted his brother to tag along, but a visit to a comedy club was in a way, so Derek decided to turn down the invitation. Alexis had left Columbus to visit her parents in her hometown of Toledo. She would be back to Columbus on Sunday, in good time. ...for the planned trip to Miami the following day. At 9pm, Brian and Clint head out to the first bar they plan to visit... ...The Ugly Tuna Salona. From there, they continue bar hopping from bar to bar... ...taking a couple of shots from place to place. At midnight, Clint gets in contact with his friend, Meredith. She was nearby, and she decides to pick them up... ...and drive them back to the bar where the evening had started... ...The Ugly Tuna. The guys wanted to take their final drink there... Brian maybe swap a few words with the live band. This bar was situated inside another building, the newly built Gateway Complex. The bar had opened in 2004 and was essentially a lively student bar with cheap beer and food service. Most of the time they also had live music. Various bands performed on a rather small black painted stage in one corner of the bar. The Gateway Complex building was largely completed and open to the public but a portion of the building on street level was still under construction. The first floor housed the Aglitona Salona and a gateway cinema, and an escalator brought the masses to the premise. On this day, now turned April the 1st, at 1.15 am, Brian, Clint and Meredith were seen riding up the escalators to the Aglituna bar. At 2 am, the bar takes the last order. Clint thinks it's time to leave and tells Meredith to make herself ready. Brian is nowhere to be seen, however. They look carefully for him inside the bar, but can't find him. They check the restrooms and shout out its name. Still no Brian. They decide to leave the bar and head down the escalators. Meredith gives Brian a call, but the call goes directly to his voicemail. She leaves him the message, where the hell are you? They stay outside the gateway entrance for 5-6 more minutes, and then they head to a garage nearby where Meredith had parked her car, and they leave. During the swimming weekend, no one gets hold of Brian, he doesn't reply to calls, and when Alexis gets back to Columbus, Brian's apartment seems virtually untouched. Her and his closest relatives proceed to look for him, but to no avail. On Monday, after the flight bound to Miami leaves without Brian and Alexis on board, the Columbus police commence an investigation on Brian Schafer's whereabouts. An important tool could provide quick answers: CCTV footage. Here, investigators can see the trio running up the escalators, and they can observe Brian Schaefer at 1:55 a.m, outside the Agatuna Salona bar, where he's seen standing next to two ladies. They all walk out of view 15 seconds later, presumably re-entering the bar. A big question mark becomes evident, however. The investigators cannot positively identify Brian leaving in place. No matter how many times they check, they cannot observe Brian leaving by the escalators. Other CCTV footage from nearby ventures are checked without providing for the clues. A big search effort is undertaken. The bar is searched, and the building housing the bar is swept through with units. Nearby neighborhoods are scoured. The river that runs close in that part of Columbus is carefully searched, and divers are used in muddy parts. But nothing is found. Tips don't really put in either. Everything that wasn't outrageous is checked by law enforcement. A money reward is set up to help find answers. Elevated to $100,000, the reward fails to bring any helpful information on Brian's whereabouts. Brian's phone showed no activity after roughly 2 a.m. No calls were made and no messages were sent. Contemporaneously, the Columbus Police conducts interviews with the staff of the bar. And the live band who played it evening, and the girls that Brian was seen with outside the bar are also questioned. The band mentions that unlike the rest of the patrons, they used an exit by the back where they loaded up all the gear, and that some fans of them had also tagged along with them. The two girls Brian was seen with mentions that they chatted with Brian until the girls left by themselves at around 2 o'clock. Staff at the Aglitona Solana bar didn't provide any further clues. That we know of in regards to Brian that night. Clint and Meredith were also interviewed and told what unfolded that evening, and that they had been looking for Brian repeatedly until they left the premise. They had assumed Brian had wandered off. Something he used to do. Brian's dad, frustrated by the lack of progress in finding Brian, hires a private investigator and turns to medium at an early stage. One of these medium Claimed that Brian had drowned in the Olentangy River on the way home, and that his body had partially floated up around the bridge pillar due to the currents. Randy went out with his brother, wading around for hours at the bridge pillars of the city. At one point, the same currents that should have kept Brian up grabbed Randy, dragging him down. Randy's brother managed to pull him up before it was too late. Afterwards, on land, with Randy wet and miserable, people said that they wished higher powers could intervene and helped his man get his son back. Randy also contacted news and radio stations and appeared in interviews. He was available 24-7 on three cell phones and called investigators in the morning hours to check how everything was going. At the same time, he had said that he showed the highest respect for the police. He understood that stepping on someone's toes would not make it easier to find Brian. When Columbus police scanned government computers, they found no evidence that his social security number had been used in any context. The FBI was contacted at one stage and helped out with an analysis of the case. Brian was then placed on their backup list, where 60 individuals who disappeared and possibly been the victim of a serious crime are listed. The investigators also took part in Brian's personal finances. He had had high loans from his studies, which in itself was not uncommon for a medical student in the US. Brian's bank account and credit card had remained untouched since his disappearance. Seemingly, with no traces uncovered and no leads to follow, detectives now stumble around in darkness with the case. One further tool the police use is to try to verify that the people Brian had spent the time with that evening when he vanished were being truthful. His father Randy, Clint Florence, and Meredith are asked to take a polygraph. Randy Meredith passed the test without deception, but Clint Florence, in an action that would cast a lingering shadow over his own involvement in Brian Schafer's disappearance that night, now lawyers up and refuses to take the test. Ultimately, the Columbus Police Department had not been able to find a single conceivable concrete evidence of what really happened to Brian. He could be alive or deceased. They couldn't confirm one or rule out the other. Derek, said investigators, as amazed as everyone else, Quote, they did everything they could to find my brother. Randy, who was a private investigator sought more detailed insight into the investigation, still believed the lead detective John Hurst when he said that they really had nothing to go on. The case had created a relationship between them, and John Hurst himself said in interviews, there is not a day that goes by when I'm thinking about what happened to Brian. When various theories of what could have happened to Brian started to emerge, Rennie said in a radio interview that investigators had asked him if Brian could have left everything behind, disappeared voluntarily, and started anew somewhere else, in the style of what he wrote on his Myspace page. Not a chance. I know my son. He wouldn't have done it to us. Alexis, who should have been on a sun-drenched beach with Brian in Miami, and perhaps have a lifelong partner to share the future with, was instead drenched in grief. Some in the family thought that Brian was about to propose to her, And that it was going to happen down in Florida. The only thing that gave her some comfort was calling Brian's phone at bedtime and immediately hear his voicemail. She continued to dial his number for months after his disappearance. It had become her evening ritual. The procedure was the same every night. And then suddenly, one day in September, she started hearing ringtones on the phone. Brian's story continues with part one, a narrative. Thank you for listening. Subscribe and make sure to check out the series on Instagram. Bye.